Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with all kinds of creative people to find out how to write better music. Today's guest is film composer Sage Lewis, a Minnesota native who is now scoring films in LA. We talk about what it takes to move to LA and make creative connections there. A lot of the communities here are still defined by schools. You've got like a USC crowd, you've got a UCLA crowd, you have a CalArts crowd. And that's, I think, part of what defines the entertainment industry here in some ways. Sage recently had two films screen at South by Southwest, a virtual reality film called Surrogate and Operator, starring Mae Whitman and Martin Starr. He shares his process in deciding how and where to add music to a film. It's kind of like putting together a puzzle where you, you have all these pieces, you don't know where anything goes yet. And then you find two pieces that connect, and you find the third piece, and then all of a sudden you have like 10 pieces that connect. Just a few quick announcements before we get into the talk. If you're in Minnesota, the Roseville String Ensemble will be performing a piece of mine this Sunday, April 24th, at 3 p.m. at Hamlin University's Sundin Hall. My former orchestra director asked me to write something that mixed strings and electronics, and I decided to pair it with a video I recorded of mayfly swarms. So there's a tip for you composers. Look for local ensembles that are interested in performing new music and offer some sort of unique element with your composition. You don't always need to aim for the most professional group in your state either. I've been pleasantly surprised by how great this community orchestra sounds. Thanks as always to my Composer Quest patrons for making this show possible. Stick around till the end of the episode for another installment of Charlie's Music Production Lessons. Now, onto my talk with Sage Lewis. Sage, uh, thanks for joining me on Composer Quest. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm from Minneapolis too, so it's it's pretty cool to be. Oh, really? Yeah. To be on a Minneapolis podcast. Awesome. So, uh, when did you move out to LA? Uh, I moved out to LA 11 years ago now. And I lived before that in Ohio because I went to Oberlin Conservatory of Music. Uh, but before that, I lived in Minneapolis when I, I was born there. And I lived there until I graduated Southwest High School when I was 18 years old. Oh, and uh, yeah. I know the place well, and I still go back a lot because my parents live there, and I have most a lot of a lot of friends. I'm still friends with my the, fr- the people I grew up with. So, oh, cool. I a good friend of mine does a lot of music substitute teaching at Southwest. So nice. That, yeah, it's a good school, good public school system there. Yeah. Was that like kind of a where you got your start doing music stuff? Yeah, I um, I took piano lessons uh, in the neighborhood from in Kenwood, and then I uh, played soccer and injured myself and couldn't do sports anymore when I was about 13 years old. Uh, and said I um, realized that I I could still do piano, and so that I got really in, into piano and like playing jazz and stuff like that. So I took lessons at McPhail. And I finally got this really great teacher named Severin Bainan, who lived there, who now lives in L.A. But um, he inspired me a lot. And I had uh, an ensemble like outside of school called Spiritus Mundi. And we would uh, play all the time. Like it was like a jazz group, but we played a lot of international music, too. And it was a quintet. And we would get together Sunday and just play, you know, seven hours practicing and then try to get together on weeknights and stuff. And. Um, but I, I really liked jazz because at that time I was really into improvisation. Um, and I kind of wanted to, I started out playing just classical music and I couldn't understand why I still didn't really know how to write my own music or sit down with someone else and play something with them if we didn't have like a special duet or something, which was for that exact instrumentation that we'd have to practice forever. I'd see other people sit down and play music together and I just couldn't understand why I couldn't do that. So then when I figured out what jazz was, I was like, oh, this is how I think I can learn how to like sit down and play with other people in a more spontaneous way. 
So jazz was sort of opened the door to all types of music to for me. Cool. When you're film scoring, how much would you say is improvising and how much is like planning out compositionally what you're doing? What I do when I f- score films is it always starts out with improvisation. I always have to s- work on a piano, which is what I the instrument that I learned on. And um, after I've thought about the film a lot and talked to the director, and then I'm watching the footage and I'm improvising, and then I can come up with something which seems to fit really well. Um, and then I take it into the computer, and then from there on out, it's pretty much a composition process in terms of, I'd say more from classical composition, because at that point, things are pretty fixed, they're set in their place. And the improvisation comes in like adding more instruments or more ideas sometimes. Yeah. Thinking back to like when you first started doing film scores, um, Uh what was the biggest challenge for you? Film scores was was always uh, not as challenging as writing regular music because, at least for me, because you had, you always had something there that was sort of your guide and would always help you make decisions because you're scoring to a narrative, you've got characters, you've got action, movement, and all these things happening. And when I'm writing music that's to nothing, that's more challenging and figuring out how long a certain section should be or why it is the way it is. It's sort of like out in the middle of nowhere, all alone. Yeah, that's a... That's an interesting point about like film scoring in some ways being easier because you have this like inherent meaning to why the music exists. It's like it's for this scene or whatever versus like a classical piece or something like that. You have to somehow figure out how to make that meaningful. Yeah, right. And out of nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's with uh there's the flip side of it too, which is that sometimes I'll write music that I really like and I and I think it works well for the scene. And the director will say they really like the music too, and I honestly do really like it, but it just doesn't work the way they want it to work. And that's really hard because then it's like you get attached to this piece of music and you love how it, it works with the picture and it, you love like the feelings that together they evoke, but then you can't use it because for some other reason it doesn't work. And so then you got to start over, which that part is hard. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've dealt with that a little bit recently with working on some films. And yeah, it is interesting because when a director gets stuck on a certain sound they want from a temp score or something like that. It takes a few extra people to push them to say like <laughs> the score could be better. Than yeah. This temp track. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, write, um, are you scoring films by, uh, Minneapolis directors or are they for films that are from somewhere else or, uh, Minneapolis directors. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Just a couple right now oh cool is the whole is the whole team based in the twin cities yeah actually um that's awesome uh did you ever do uh scoring while you're here in minneapolis or no i never did except uh my wife is a video editor and uh video artist and so she and i lived in minneapolis together and we worked on stuff but um it was only for a brief period but the reason I uh, am curious about it is because sometimes I consider what it would be like to move back to Minneapolis and wonder how much film scoring opportunities there would be and what kind of the life, my life as a composer would be like if I lived there. So, um, yeah, but I, I haven't really met that many. I've met a lot of great musicians, but not people that have that score films there. So, it, yeah, it's cool to hear that you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, it's a pretty tight knit film community and yeah, I don't, I don't know how many well-paid gigs there are (laughs) around, but 
if you were to move back here, would you still be able to get gigs in LA, do you think? Or is it just, you have to be out there to be competitive? I don't know. That would be sort of the big uh, gamble. Um, there's some directors which I have really good relationships with and we, uh, we want to keep working together, but it also makes a big difference to be together in person. And I don't know if I were to live somewhere else, if they would still prefer to work with me or it'd be easier to just find someone who, another composer that they also like, who's more local. So, um, sure. But I think the ideal situation is that at some point, I think of any any composer really develop enough of a name and, and network of, of good professional relationships that then you can live wherever you want and, and keep the career the same way it was when you were kind of younger, paying your dues in L.A. or something like that. Sure. How did you get your start in L.A.? Well, I moved out to L.A. to go to CalArts for the music composition program, um, MFA program, and uh, that's just north of, that's in Valencia, in the northern suburb of L.A., and I made a lot of friends there, and a lot of people left L.A., but then, I don't know, maybe half of them or a third of them stayed in L.A., or are still here now, I guess, uh, seven years later. And everyone, most people are working creatively still uh, and professionally, so not everything I do is with CalArts people, but it's, an, it's a strong base, and we like to work with each other because you have this kind of common language and creative trust in each other, and so that helps, but also through that community, like you can meet other people and will be recommended for other things. So I'd say a lot of it comes from going to CalArts because when I was there, I made it a, a point to work with film directors and theater directors, experimental media people and dance choreographers and stuff like that. So, so I just kind of worked on projects the whole time and that just kind of naturally continued after graduating Sure. I think LA is a really um, daunting city, and I, I think it's really hard to move here cold because there's not a lot of opportunities to socialize and meet people. It's um, ironic because it's a there's a lot of people here, but it's hard, still hard to meet people. Things are very spread out, and there's a lot of private space. There's not a lot of public space, like. Compared to New York or something, everyone's sort of out in the city. Um, they're in places where they can bump into each other. And L.A. has a lot of, like, you know, parties and regular things, but there's not as people on the streets. There's not as many local venues where you run into people on a regular basis. And, and I, I think that actually a lot of the communities here are still defined by schools. You've got, like, a USC crowd, you've got a UCLA crowd, you have a CalArts crowd, there's like an art center crowd, there's these different people who, who know each other from where they went to school and they're, you know, 10, 20 years later and still kind of identify in some ways with, with that because LA has a lot of great schools and that's, I think, part of what defines the entertainment industry here in some ways. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of your film scores. The, the one I want to start off with is Catterwall. The uh -huh. short film, maybe you could describe what that film is about real quick. Oh, that was a really fun film to make uh, by director Ian Samuels, who I've uh, worked with on a, a number of fil short films. And he's really brilliant at using puppets inside of films, but not in like a Muppets kind of way, like for kids the puppets are, are funny, but they're also somewhat realistic. So this film was his thesis film at CalArts, and they went out to uh, Cape Cod and, and filmed it. And it's a, a sad kind of metaphorical story about an old man who's a fisherman, and uh, he lived in his house for his whole life with his wife, and she had recently died and so he's out fishing, and he misses her a lot, and he's really lonely, and uh, he catches a lobster, and the lobster turns into 
his wife, it like grows and becomes a mutant. Um, it's a hundred year old lobster, actually. It's like the same age. Well, they're like 90 or something, but it's about the same age as them in real life. Um, and those old, old lobsters are really, really big. And he, he, he catches hundreds of lobsters a day, but he really identifies with this one. And, uh, he decides to bring it home and he feeds it some clam chowder and then it starts growing and then it becomes like human size. It's like a big mutant lobster. And then they like sort of snuggle together in bed and then he realizes this is absurd and he has to take this lobster back to the ocean and put it back. It could be interpreted that this is actually happening, or it could be interpreted that he's actually just imagining this because he misses her so much. I could see others moments where people are like tempted to laugh, maybe yeah. at this absurd like lobster mutant as his wife. Uh, but yeah. I think like the places you placed music, keep it in the realm of like an emotional story still. I don't know. Yeah. How did you decide where to put music? I, th I remember reading the script and then sort of taking notes of where music could go, uh, just from imagining the film through the script. And then when he gave me a, I think it was probably a rough cut. I don't think it was the final cut. And then I, I went in. I just, uh, looking for a place to start is always a hard part because once you get going, it's all kind of downhill from there. Like, it's kind of like putting together a puzzle where you, you have all these pieces and you don't know where anything goes yet. And then you find two pieces that connect and you find the third piece. And then all of a sudden you have like 10 pieces that connect. And that's like a pretty big chunk. And then you can either build off that or you can find new pieces and connect those. And you've got these two large chunks and then eventually figure out how those connect with each other. So that's sort of the basic or my basic process. And that's how I remember it was for Catterwall. But I remember the director, Ian, was also very uh, we worked a lot together and we sat down side by side and figured out where music would go. Like after I had already composed music. But then we'd go and we'd edit it and we'd remove stuff and we'd add stuff together. And everything in that score is very simple. It's all just like the type of music where a little, like one note goes a really long way. Recently, we were at South by Southwest, right? Yeah. Or, well, did you get to go to South by Southwest for your films? Yeah, I went, and it was really great. It was my first time there. Um, my first time in Austin, too, or even in Texas. And it was a pretty amazing experience. It's really amazing to be able to be there with, with two different films, which were very similar in a lot of ways, but extremely different in other ways. And... Uh, yeah, so um, tell me about, well, first of all, your virtual reality score, or well, I don't know if the score is uh, virtual reality exactly, but... Yeah, that's a film called The Surrogate, uh, which was a finalist for the Interactive Innovation Awards uh, at the Interactive Festival, because they have the Film Festival, Interactive Festival, and Music Festival there. But it was a film, and the reason it was, I think one of the main reasons it was chosen for this award was because it was very innovative in the way that it was an immersive, spherical film that was also interactive. So you're inside of a, a film, but you can actually walk around it and look at 
the film from different angles and choose your perspective and get closer to things and the sound and everything changes as you move around. So it's actually a combination of this a CG architecture where you're inside of this house, you're in the walls, and there's all these different rooms and you kind of walk around and, and watch things that are happening through the walls. Um, and the story, the narrative, like has a reason for you to be in the walls too. So it's sort of like a, a, an emotional thriller because you're in a very intense situation where you've decided to live in the walls and get a surrogate to replace you to be with your husband for a while to help fix your relationship. But while the surrogate is there, you have to just observe uh, silently through the walls. So it's a very dark and intense story. And it's not like an action movie, but it is inside of your nervous system. So that's what the score is doing. You're having these very intense reactions to what's happening. And so you feel that because um, as you move around and the sounds that are happening in the real space change based on where you go, your emotions are inside of you. They're omnipresent and they don't change. So that was what the role of the score was. And that kind of like gave me a, a framework to figure out what type of music to compose to work for this project. Hmm. Cool. So like in the trailer video, I noticed this, the sounds would change in the stereo field based on which way you were looking. But the, I'm assuming the music didn't, it was just like stereo the whole time. Yeah. The music was stereo. Um, in, in Unity, which is the game engine where uh, it's a software where all, everything is put together to create this uh, video games or a project like this. And there's sound settings inside of Unity where you can, there's a little dial, uh, like a continuum, like a fader, which is uh, goes from 2D to 3D. And um, if you push it to 2D, it's just stereo... It's like omnipresent. It doesn't change based on where you go in the space. And if you move it all the way to 3D, then it's fully located in this audio source, which is a little thing that you put in the space, and that's where the sound is coming from. But then you can move the dial in between so you can get something that's somewhat located, but also you always hear it. But all the music, we ended up making it all all two-dimensional. Okay. So... Oh, that's weird that you can have it somewhere in the middle, too. Yeah. I, I'm just curious how, how that... Is it like 50% volume is the 2D and 50% is like wherever you're close to, it'll get a little louder or something like that? Yeah, or? it would go from like 50% at the lowest to 100% if you're standing right on the audio source. Fifty percent, if you're as far away from possible as audio source, and then you can create the range so of like the audio source and the uh, attenuation. So you can make it so within ten feet of the audio source you hear it, but outside of ten feet you don't hear it anymore. Or you can make it like ten miles. Um, so it's a it's a very gradual. So you can kind of control acoustics and physics a little bit within this game engine. Um, however, I don't think that it's g as good as it should be. I think they don't spend it, invest enough of their development money on audio. They spend so much of it on CPU and visuals and all this other stuff. And uh, the way the audio functions is, for me, especially writing music for it, unsatisfying because the experience could be a lot better and the musical possibilities could be much more interesting if that part of this technology was developed. And I'm sure it will be someday, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. I did see they added like a mixer feature in the newer version of Unity. Yeah, that's nice. We use that too, and that helped a lot because you can actually, it's the one thing you can change while you're, you're demoing the game. You can actually mix it and walk around and mix it. Cool. Well, so your other film at South by Southwest, Operator? Yeah. Yeah, what, what's that film about? Uh, that film is about a young married couple who lives in Chicago 
who are uh, the husband who's played by Martin Starr is a programmer working for a tech startup and he designs artificial intelligence robo voices and he's just developed one for this client which is this healthcare company and it's supposed to respond to sick people and help them get the care they need while saving money for the client by not having to hire full-time call center employees. And it's a huge flop, and the the small tech startup uh, which developed it is uh, told that they need to make a much more empathetic voice because it was just too rude and it was making their customers angry. And they can't, they say empathy is the one thing that you can't do in artificial intelligence because it's like the one thing that's so human. And so they have to try it anyways. And they can't find an em- the right person to model off it. And they interview all these people and they finally realize that this guy, Joe's wife, is really empathetic. And she's, uh, her name's Emily. She's played by Mae Whitman and she works in a hotel and is really great with angry guests. And so they decide to model the voice off after her. And she, uh, her husband, Joe, needs to collect millions of responses of hers data for his algorithm. And so the easiest way to do it is just to put an app in her phone. So while she's at work and dealing with different types of customer concerns, it just records it all. And then he breaks it up and creates an algorithm. So he basically creates a virtual version of her and then he gets a little bit obsessed with it and she gets jealous and it, it, um, he is kind of more interested in his own recreation of her than he is in her because he can kind of perfect quote unquote, perfect his wife. Um, so that's the basic story. Cool. I thought it was cool that you had some like vocoder words in your opening theme. The film was a perfect excuse to use a vocoder because vocoders are so much fun, but I think most of the times they don't really fit, especially for film scoring. But in this case, it fit perfectly because the score was half acoustic and half electronic. And there was one synth version of every acoustic instrument, such as uh, there's a string quartet... And then there was sort of these synth strings. And then there was a piano, and then there was a synth piano. And then there was percussion and... And electronic percussion. Guitar. And then kind of a uh, synthy harp. As the character Joe, kind of like Frankenstein, was creating this new, bringing life to this new uh, person which really did end up becoming a character and did have a real spirit and real presence in the film like a character does. That uh, as, as she was coming to life, the score for her was becoming more real. And the vocoder was great because it made the electronic music sound more human-like. Sometimes you can, it's, it's in, intelligible. We can actually hear what it's saying. Most of the time it's not, but it just gives this human voice-like quality. Cool. What did you end up using for the words of it? 
Is it lines from the movie or? Yeah. When I was in the middle of writing the music with the vocoder, I didn't know what text like would be right for it. So I just spoke things in and just kind of joked around and came up with whatever I could think of on the spot. And then once the music was done, I went back and was like, okay, we have to figure out something that's better than whatever I said. Even if you don't understand it, it still should have some sort of meaning. And when you do understand it, it will be better if it's meaningful. So, um, And adding like text to a film is always tricky because it's sort of like you're writing a script. I mean, it's kind of like when you're writing lyrics, but but you're adding real words to to something that already has a lot of words that were very carefully chosen in the dialogue. So what we did is, uh, this was the idea of the sound designer, Nathan Rule, who did a lot of the voice over recording for this character. Uh, with Mae Whitman, he had already recorded all these phrases of hers, and that was perfect because she was the real character, and I was sort of creating this digital robot version of her. So I just took her real language and then put it into the vocoder, found different phrases which seemed like would be most meaningful to those moments and those scenes, and then use that. So it, it actually had pretty good source material, which I was pretty excited about. Cool. Uh, and I was seeing in one of your interviews about the score, too, that you kind of had a different style for each of the characters. Yeah, the characters had, each one had a, a very um, coherent concept musically. Joe, who is the husband, he would always have these panic attacks. He's always very stressed out. So those were evoked through feedback, which uh, actually is, a, a panic attack is a feedback loop psychologically because what happens is something bad happens and then your mind says, uh-oh, since this happened, that means this other thing is going to happen, which is even worse, and you go on this downward spiral. So it's kind of like the way feedback work, works, where if you have a sound, it goes, it gets amplified, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and just feeds back into itself. So this sound was like perfect for his panic attacks because it made you feel like you were having a panic attack with him. So then uh, Emily, his wife, is this very empathetic character who has like this, we call it her superpower sound, because she can, uh, when she talks to people, she makes them feel better. Whenever Joe would have a panic attack, he would need her to come, and she's the only thing that could calm him down. And so a singing bowl was a perfect uh, music sound for her, because like singing bowls, they use in Tibetan Buddhism, it's just a sign tone, really, that really somehow has this amazing ability to bring your mind into focus. And uh, that's why you meditate with it, because it takes all your thoughts and just brings them into something really, really simple, like this most simple type of tone that exists in the natural world. So Joe would have his panic attacks, and it would sort of be the most chaotic form of sound that would happen. And then her singing bowl sound would come in and bring his chaotic, out-of-control feedback into a very peaceful, relaxed state of sound, which is a sine wave. Both of those sounds are very constant, I think, like feedback yeah. and a singing bowl, just both kind of like straight tones for a while. But I, it's interesting how just the change in timbre, I guess, makes one feel very comforting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't even need, it doesn't even matter like what notes you use. It's just all about the timbre. Yeah. In the feature film I'm scoring right now, the director wants a lot of like long tones and very like subtle tone composing. And it's kind of hard to like 
after a while, it kind of feels like there's only so many things you can do with long tones, but I don't know. How did, did you run into that at all? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I use on tones for underscoring. The thing is, is tones have a way of sounding really dark and ominous and like foreboding, like something bad is about to happen. And Operator was had a lot of darkness to it, but it was also a comedy and fun uh, and had lighthearted at the same time. So there were like low tones that were used with the cello and they really worked well in certain scenes, but they were, it was used pretty sparingly. And then there was another instrument, a reactor instrument by Native Instruments called uh, Metaphysical Function, which is sort of like this really beautiful synth machine that you can't really control it. It has a mind of its own and it just generates these crazy beautiful sounds and you can you can change it because it has a lot of dials and it has like inputs and, and ways you can tweak it. But you can't really ever get what you want. You just sort of keep playing with it until it produces something and then if you like that you record it and use it. And so that created this very atmospheric it had elements of feedback and this kind of static tone sound. Yeah, thinking about it, actually... Like what you're saying, like the tonal scoring does seem kind of ominous. Um, but, uh-huh. but yeah, one thing that I tried was just having like space between tones and just like regular pulsing kind of like breathing and having the space there seemed like it lightened it up quite a bit. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And also like sometimes in that situation... I, f- I feel like directors like tones a lot because it doesn't distract you or s- or stick out. It's just like this bed of emotion that uh, can help lift the scene without um, getting in the way. And sometimes for like what you're saying, if you have it breathe a little bit or to try to make it so it's not so uh, ominous sounding, sometimes just putting like a triad and then having it be in some sort of timbre, which feels like it's it kind of glows a little bit. And you can put that underneath, and that'll give it an inspired feeling without having it be, like, ominous. Hmm, yeah. I have a tradition on the podcast where I have a, a question chain going, and I have a question for you from... My last guests, oh, cool. Mikey and Mandy, and they were asking um, if you could write for any instrumentation and have it be performed, what would that instrumentation be? Well, I guess if it could go, if the sky's the limit, it would be fun to put together like a whole new symphony orchestra where you have an ensemble that's as big as a symphony orchestra but it wouldn't be the exact same instruments that are in the symphony orchestra, which were instruments that kind of, you know, evolved centuries ago. And it it works great as ensemble, and it's still a very valid uh, form of instrumentation. But it would be fun to start from scratch and pick 30 different types of instruments, which would definitely, you know, be like strings and harps and things that, are in the normal orchestra, but also it would be fun to pick like instruments from other cultures. Um, like I have a whole section of Middle Eastern strings, like Rababa and Gaychak and Oud and stuff like that. Um, have a woodwind section, which had different types of wooden flutes and flutes from around the world. A percussion section that had other types of percussion instruments from around the world and then also had like 
modular synthesizers and other effects pedals so that you have this like universe like a, a larger universe of of sounds and then write something for that to be performed would be really amazing like that's such a huge project that <laughs> that's like <laughs> that that sounds awesome though <laughs> I, I would love to hear a group like that yeah me too but that's the cool thing about film scoring is you can kind of do that with film scoring because you can just pick whatever you think, whatever instrument you think is best and then go and find them and record with them or keep it as a virtual instrument, which isn't as good, but you're not really constrained by anything when you're scoring a film. Yeah. So do you have a question for my next guest? Uh, I don't have one on the top of my head, but I can think of one quickly. Do you, do I get to know anything about the guest, or is it just an open-ended question for any type of composer? Uh, well, it's it's meant to be just an open question. Okay, let's see. Um, but it is well, yeah. I can tell you um, who this is actually, okay? Because uh, your PR manager, Andrew, also forwarded her info. Crystal oh, cool. Grooms Mangano. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I met her at South by Southwest. Um, let's see. Okay. So if you were to write a score, or if you were to write a piece of music for the city of Los Angeles, like if you were to score the city as a a three-dimensional space, what kind of music would you write? Because I, I know she lives in L.A., so. Nice. That's a good one. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Cool, thanks. Uh, great talking to you, too. Thanks for having me um, on the show as well. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Sage Lewis. To hear more of Sage's music and watch his short films, like the lobster film Catterwall, visit sagelewismusic.com. Thanks to Andrew Cohen at CW3PR for setting up our interview. Feel free to get in touch with me by email, charlie at composerquest.com, or find Composer Quest on Twitter or Facebook. All right, time for another... Since my guest Sage Lewis described film scoring like connecting puzzle pieces, I thought I'd share an example of that from a film I'm scoring called Twin Cities. Without giving too much away, the film is structured kind of like a mirror, so scenes that happen in the first half are reflected in the second half. For most of these mirrored scenes, it was easy to bring back the same sounds and style, because the moods were fairly straightforward. But I left two of the most challenging scenes until the end, and I was starting to hit a wall with them. One of these scenes involved a proposal in a park. On the surface, it's romantic, but in the context of the film, it has an undercurrent of unease. My first attempt was to do something tonal. Even though the tones are mostly major, it still felt a little too cold for this spring day in the park. So I gave it another shot, this time approaching it with a more experimental attitude. I recorded a sloppy guitar and vocal demo. I kind of liked it, but I didn't think I'd actually use the demo recording. But out of laziness, I decided to try it out rather than record something cleaner. When you want to repurpose a rough recording like this, all you have to do is just reverse it and add a ton of effects.
So far, this cue was going in the same direction as my original tonal demo, very slow and somewhat cold. So I decided to add more rhythmic movement. I used a mellow Rhodes synth with my favorite effect, a MIDI arpeggiator, set to make upward arpeggios. The cool thing about these arpeggio patterns is that you can easily change up the time signature by adding or subtracting a finger in the chord you're holding. In this section you'll hear me transition from 4-4 to 5-4. Next I added a second arpeggio layer which served as an accent layer rather than setting the time signature like my first layer. Here are the two layers together. Next, I added some electric guitar harmonics and arpeggios. then synth strings, and finally, a bass to ground the whole thing. Here's what the full mix sounds like. I was a little worried it had too much going on and would distract from the dialogue, but the director actually loved it. I think each instrument is mellow enough that when they're added together it creates a blanket of sound with nothing sticking out. The other hardest scene to score was one where the main character Emily is describing her novel while we're seeing the images come to life with an imaginary couple. It's about this lovely couple living this nice life in the not-too-distant future until one day, out of the blue, the guy drowns in this horrible accident. It's a tricky scene to score because it starts out dramatic and then becomes comedic. In my first attempt, I tried to do both things at the same time with a quirky score. At the time, I thought it worked, but the director was very lukewarm on it. He kept pushing a temp track that had a heavy beat. I wasn't sure that style would work exactly, but it was clear he wanted more forward momentum. So here's where I started to connect the dots, thanks to a suggestion by the editor, Jason Schumacher. Since this scene is thematically connected to the park scene I had already scored, I thought I'd try starting with the same style of Rhodes arpeggios. Once I had this basic structure to work with, I improvised three wandering piano lines on top. I recorded these three takes very quickly so I wouldn't accidentally copy the other lines from memory, and so each part would feel slightly unexpected. You'll hear the first take in the mid-range of the piano, the second take in the bass range, and the third take in the upper register. Next, I brought in the same synth string sound from the park scene. And finally, I added a low bass rumble for when a gun appears. I sent what I had so far to the director, and he was half sold on it, 
but it still needed more momentum to match the intensity of the story. So I tried a rhythmic shift during the key point in the story. I doubled the speed of the arpeggio notes, but I also slowed the tempo a little bit. So it still feels faster, but not doubly fast. I also added five percussion layers, which you'll hear come in one at a time. The initial woodblock sound I used seemed a little too realistic for this soundscape, so I used a bit crushing effect to make it sound a little more electronic. So in the end I abandoned the comedic side of this score in favor of a darker, more dramatic mood. I think the comedic take on the end of the scene actually works better when the viewer is totally invested in the drama of the story. Then when the music cuts out, it's even more of a surprise comedic moment. Before I play the full track, I want to remind you that you can find all of these production lessons as their own sub-podcast. Just search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons, and you can find the whole collection for free on iTunes or any other podcast app. If you're curious about this film, you can search for Twin Cities by David Ash, and follow along on Facebook for updates about future screenings. Thanks again for listening. And here's my in-progress track, tentatively titled, Fujiya Story. <laughs>